Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with the vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Ellis. Well, good morning. Uh, good morning. A very early morning here in Los Angeles, California, where I have spent the weekend with Pastor John MacArthur and Grace Community Church celebrating the premiere of the Essential Church movie. If you missed my interview with Pastor MacArthur, you can go and find that uh, from last week, I believe it was on Wednesday at AFR.net. And you can go to EssentialChurchMovie.com because this Sunday, July 28th, is the nationwide premiere in theaters. You're not going to want to miss this documentary that talks about our amazing, significant legal win in the state of California uh, to keep churches open uh, during the COVID pandemic. It is such a clear presentation of the gospel of Christ. Um, I love it and I love this project and uh, it was just so wonderful to be here and be a part of it. So uh, let's turn now to my first guest, Jake Denton. All of you are familiar with him. He's become a regular on the show because he's so well-versed in tech policy and things that uh, we as uh, Christians and also parents and um, if there's are single people out there like me, the dating world even is uh, now apparently connected to a lot of artificial intelligence. And I'm not really sure that's a, a, a great thing. So uh, Jake Denton is the policy advisor for the Heritage Foundation. And uh, good morning, Jake. Good morning. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. So I think we should start there because um, on the artificial intelligence, because uh, you know, I think everyone is familiar kind of with the online dating. Um, you know, I mean, I've, I have so many friends that met their spouses on, you know, whether it's Match, eHarmony, some of those, um, and, and some of those online forums, even reconnecting over Facebook or social media. I have friends who met online on Twitter. But um, artificial intelligence becoming a part of this, uh, what's going on and, and how is this uh, being billed as remotely a good thing? Yeah, so this is kind of an interesting evolution. Obviously, not everyone has a great deal of success when it comes to the online dating apps. Uh, you know, we're all kind of forced into that environment in one way or another. Um, but a lot of people fall through the cracks. And what we've seen in the, the last couple of weeks, Maya, to come across your Twitter feed, so there's actually an uptick in this trend of AI girlfriends. Um, and that's a horrifying thing just as at the top level. But when you think about uh, the way in which this is being executed, it's even worse. So what we basically have right now going on is uh, the same folks that are making OnlyFans pages, kind of the subscription uh, pornography platforms, uh, are actually using all of their media, so audio files, um, you know, photographs, videos, to replicate themselves in an AI fashion. And then they're selling subscriptions to an application that allows for their fans to date them virtually. And so what happens essentially is you pay, some are by the minute and some are, you know, weekly, monthly type subscriptions. And a replica of the girl's voice will actually send you, you know, audio messages, will have phone calls with you. Um, and it's incredibly realistic. Um, and obviously, you know, there's gaps in the technology still where the very rudimentary phases of this kind of AI deployment um, but we're already reaching kind of horrific side effects like this, where 
people are turning even to the most extreme and starting to, you know, have these very uh, personal conversations with AI bots. Um, so it's horrific. <laughs> I think this is uh, probably the worst possible use case so far that we've seen for this technology. Yeah, and, and I mean, I have to ask the question, is there even a customer base for this? But, you know, obviously, uh, when you take the humanity and the morality out of human sexuality and relationships, and it becomes unmoored from the family institution that God created, then people get into all kinds of perverse and diverse kinds of um, interests and, and ways that uh, they try to replicate that um, that that need that all of us have for uh, belonging and for relationships and are trying to just artificially uh, create them. And and this seems this almost seems like another iteration of uh, there was a movie. I don't even recall the the title of it and I didn't see it, but I saw the previews and a lot of commentary about it where, you know, a guy is basically dating this this woman that's artificially generated on. I think it's his computer or his television or something. And and it's so realistic. And and so, you know, where does this tell us that our culture is going, Jake Denton, when you have this kind of artificial type of relationship. I mean, I think it's bad enough that that two actual humans are basically dating each other virtually through text messaging, through, you know, just Zoom phone calls, through other things that aren't even in person, but at least they're two real people. But, you know, what does this tell us as a commentary on our society and where this is going, that this kind of thing would have a consumer base? Yeah, you know, for your first question on the customer base, no one obviously will admit to actually subscribing to this. But if you look at the Google search trends, which is a feature that Google has where you can type in a phrase or a word and it'll tell you how often during the day or a given period of time something has been searched, the amount of people typing in AI girlfriend has skyrocketed over the last couple of weeks. And so there's obviously intrigue around it. We'll probably have to wait a little bit to see the download metrics and hear about, you know, um, how many people are actually logging in on a daily basis. But at the very least, people are curious and they're exploring this. And whether or not it starts out just as, you know, seeing what the tech is and evolves into something a little more harmful or, you know, starts off being horrible, uh, it's tough to say. But uh, you know, what it says about our society, I think, is that, um, you know, a lot of people are more isolated than they'd probably like to admit, um, you know, whether it be that you've fallen through the cracks on the dating apps or, you know, just in the real world in general, uh, you know, people are going home in our increasingly digitized society and they have no one to talk to. They have no one to kind of share the details of their life with. And so when something like this, an AI chatbot can come along and We'll just text you, you know, how's your day going or, uh, you know, what are you up to? A lot of people are going to take that and just run with it. I don't think a lot of people will even care that they're talking to a robot. It's just that, you know, you have someone to express your uh, kind of concerns of the day or how you're feeling to. And um, this could get really scary really quickly where, you know, you're confiding into this robot. Where do those conversations go? You know, uh, there's obviously a lot of privacy concerns here as well because, they don't just disappear into the ether. They're being logged and stored. And if you're confiding in this robot about the most intimate details of your life, I mean, for things like phishing, where they're trying to get your passwords or any of those types of issues, instantly uh, amplified through these types of conversations. So uh, there's a great deal of concern, both on a, a social side of you know what it says about uh, particularly where our young generation is, uh, and then also just on a data privacy side.
Yeah, and I think that's absolutely true, uh, Jake Denton, and it, it speaks to privacy concerns and then also how we as a culture and as uh, human beings are relating to each other when we think about what relationships are actually for uh, as human beings made in the image of God and we are designed and built for relationship with each other um, and ultimately into a saving knowledge of our relationship with Jesus Christ and then the institution of marriage and the family and all of those things that are built around that institution that that deal with uh, interacting with with people on a human, literally a human level, that aren't uh, perfect interactions. Obviously, you know, there's there are always uh, disagreements and and uh, you know hurt feelings. Some of those things that you don't get with some of these AI bots that are uh, probably geared toward uh, just your own personal preferences and serving you like a like a customer. And you know, this kind of to me seems like a, a further. Um, iteration of one of the problems that actually my brother and I both observed about online dating. And, you know, we both um, had at one point, you know, signed up on match.com and whatever. And it's like you were put uh, with all of these options. And so it's it's almost like the toothbrush aisle where it's like how many different types of toothbrushes can you possibly contemplate? And so it's overwhelming. And so people then tend to be looking for the perfect and looking for what suits them and their own preferences and treating relationships and human interactions more from a consumer metric than they do a human being and respecting the humanity and the imago dei, the image of God in another person. I mean, so I think that this is just yet another iteration of what is really extremely wrong with our culture's view of humanity. Would you agree? Absolutely. And, you know, going to the, the dating example, these dating applications, almost all of them have a paid-for subscription option, a premium version of the app, which means that by the very nature of kind of the system we live on, uh, that means the incentive is to keep you on the platform, right? So we're having these horrible experiences where, you know, um, there's the paralysis of choice, everything, you just keep swiping and um, you never get off the app. Well, that's the intended purpose of the application. They want to drain as much money and data from you as a customer as possible because at the end of the day, you're really the product. Um, and so that's a, a really concerning element in this whole kind of online dating culture here is, um, it's kind of replacing, in many ways, our uh, human interaction, and then the outcomes are completely different because it's all built upon profit and not actually, you know, matching you up with your uh, most compatible match. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, speaking of commoditizing, uh, you had posted a few days ago a video that you said every parent needs to watch, and um, it's talking about protecting. Uh, kids online and an increasingly digitized society where uh, parents are posting so much social media content of their kids that it is removing that privacy uh, element. And we think that we're doing this to share in a community that is online. But the reality is then uh, we're allowing our kids to become a product that social media is using to uh, to drive not only their own monetizing, but uh, potentially some damaging consequences. And so, um, what is why why do you say that this will have a devastating impact on the next generation? So, in the grand scheme of things, we're still in the very early stages of social media, right? This technology has only been around for around uh, you know a decade or so. 
And with that, we're still figuring out how to actually use it and what the acceptable boundaries and red lines are. Um, And, you know, many parents continued their exact same uh, kind of parenting activities in a digital setting. So, you know, normally you'd have your friends come over to the house, you'd show them uh, disposable photos, things of that nature, photos you might have, uh, you know, snapped and printed out. Um, And so parents naturally took those same photos and began to upload them on social media and treated the platform almost as a digital scrapbook, somewhere where they could log the, the life of their child and share with family that might be close by or far away. Um, but, you know, what happened over time is um, these social media platforms evolved to a scale that extended that immediate social circle and really just became a network of people with really no connection to each other. And so I encourage everyone to go watch that video. But one of the, the stats that they posted on there was that eight out of 10 parents actually have people following them or are friends with people um, who they don't actually know in the real world. Um, And so what happens essentially is you're uploading troves of content of your child and their face, and all it takes is one for a bad actor to, you know, cause make a digital replica of the child uh, to maybe make a pass at going for their identity. Um, There's all sorts of applications now with the, the rise of artificial intelligence that are very easy for just about anyone to use um, that could have a devastating impact on the child, uh, eliminate their credit score, make it impossible for them to just live a normal life, frame them for a crime. Um, And so across the board, these seemingly innocent acts of uploading a photo could derail a child's entire life. And there's no undo button. Once that photo goes up, it's up. And uh, that kid had no say in it. So it's very important for parents to keep in mind that everything they post is permanent, And even a family photo, something very innocent that you would share uh, with just about anyone, could be the one thing that flips the the kid's life on its head. Wow. And, you know, that's that's an incredibly important uh, consideration for parents. And I know that we talk a lot about uh, permanent decisions that parents make for their children. Obviously, I think uh, our whole network is against uh, the the transmutilation surgeries and things like that. But then uh, these other types of things are very, very far removed. Like, well, what's what's the problem with just uploading a photo? Well, it is permanent. Um, and a lot of people do treat it like a digital scrapbook. And parents may want to consider just having all of those settings as super, super private or have, you know, something that's like a Dropbox that people can access that's totally away from social media. Uh, there's some really good things, but you can find this video at Real Jay Denton on Twitter, uh, Jake Denton from the Heritage Foundation. And we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back. And uh, last week, a very interesting poll came out for the 2024 GOP straw poll results from uh, my other network, Salem Media Group, where you can find my uh, show and podcast, The Jenna Ellis Show at thejennaellisshow.com. That's on Salem Media and then also Town Hall. So this was a straw poll result as of 
July 19th that showed, I think, a really interesting distinction between what you're seeing in a lot of uh, the polls that are done by Hillary Clinton's pollsters or, you know, Rich Barris, who I don't trust very much, or other polls that uh, Team Trump is generally touting with this like 30 point lead or more over uh, Ron DeSantis. This was a straw poll of um, around 40,000 listeners from Salem Media and Town Hall that uh, generally our audience there tends to be uh, very conservative in a um, in an old school conservative sense, um, a lot of them historically have been very pro-Trump. And um, so th- so not a lot of independence. Um, this is very interesting, the results. So again, about 40,000 participants. Donald Trump is at 51.92% and Ron DeSantis is 38.05%. So uh, that margin and that gap is a lot closer and a lot tighter race than any of the other polls uh, recently would suggest, with the next closest candidate being Vivek Ramaswamy at only 3.63%. So joining me now to break this down and uh, talk generally about the race and some of these other implications is my very good friend, uh, Bill Mitchell. He is the CEO of Your Voice Studios, and he has a wonderful show that he streams online on Twitter, as well as yourvoicenews.com. So Bill, thanks so much for joining me, Anna. What do you make of this uh, straw poll from Salem Media? Yeah, thank you very much. Well, you know, polling is very suspect right now anyway, because uh, you may ask yourself, you know, how can you look at a poll of, say, 800 people? And have that be representative of 169 million voters, right? Well, the only way that, that works is if those 800 people are uh, randomly selected. And because of the way polling works now, uh, you need about an 80 to 90 percent response rate of the people you call, and you're getting about a 6 percent response rate. So what happens? This isn't a random sample anymore, so you've got to add weighting, you've got pollster bias, you've got pollsters that are grouping together because nobody wants to have the outlier poll. You don't know who's paying for the poll. So really, it becomes more of just propaganda and a guessing game. Now, a, a straw poll is something different because you're going not for, uh, you know, people are self-selecting into the poll. Uh, people are saying they want to be a part of this poll. Not, you're not just randomly calling people. Um, so that changes things as well. Uh, and the Salem audience is going to be predominantly uh, GOP, predominantly Republican. That's always been a, a crowd that is stronger for Trump, especially with his indictments. Well, why is that? Well, because this is the crowd that's most likely to feel to take it personally when Trump is indicted, because it's not just Trump being indicted, but it's the GOP brand being indicted by the DNC. It's an us versus them sort of thing. And they're going to want to circle the wagons around Trump. So Trump's going to get a lot of the martyr sympathy vote on that. Um, also, one of the groups that DeSantis is very strong with is the independent voter right now. Uh, it used to be about a 30, 30, you know, uh, third, a third, a third, independents, Democrats, Republicans. Well, it's really changed because a lot of uh, uh, Biden chased a lot of Democrats to the middle. And, you know, a lot of Republicans went to the middle, too, when they became disappointed with losing these elections. So you get about 50 percent independents, 25 percent GOP and 25 percent Democrats. So uh, you got to have that independent vote in there, those right leaning independent votes in there. And we saw that Marquette poll that came out of Wisconsin that included that, and DeSantis did exceptionally well in that poll. Uh, he was tied uh, in a full field vote, and he was uh, 16 points ahead in a head-to-head vote. So, but this poll is going to be—it's not going to be random. It's going to be self-selecting, and it's also not going to probably include a lot of independent voters because I would think that that's not really Salem's audience. Um, independent voters tend to be less uh, less of ideologues. 
They're more about, you know, I just want stuff to work. I just want my kids to be safe. I don't want there to be crime. I want there to be a good economy. You know, they're not, they're not on Twitter every day. You know, they're not listening to talk radio every day. And so, um, and that group really favors DeSantis because DeSantis is the just make stuff work candidate, right? So whenever they have a poll that includes those, it really helps them. Okay, I said all that to say this. The fact that uh, Trump comes in at 51% here and DeSantis is about 38% amongst a very conservative right-leaning group, that's very good for DeSantis because that is Trump's core, core, core base. And DeSantis is almost at 40% with those, and then he's capturing 60 to 70% of that independent vote out there. You know, realistically, DeSantis right now could be leading this race. And Bill Mitchell, I think that that's really uh, excellent analysis. And what do you make that from the poll, DeSantis also took first place in uh, several meaningful states, uh, Colorado, Georgia, Utah, Virginia, and Wisconsin. I mean, these states have, uh, you know, a lot of core uh, base issues that will play to the 2024 primary. And especially when you're looking, um, I think, at, at Georgia and Wisconsin, which are two states that uh, Trump would definitely need in in the general. But I think, you know, even uh, looking toward the primary. Yeah, well, we've seen this. In, there are several polls out now that I've been calling for this. We're seeing it more where they're not just saying, you know, who's your preference, but they're, they're doing a temperature map on it. OK, you know, who's your preference? But are you, you know, if you like Trump, are you ride or die Trump? You know, Trump, no matter what, are you kind of on the bubble and Trump is your default choice because you don't know who else you want uh, or are you never Trump? Well, uh, in a number of polls now, not just individual voters, but also when they've been, uh, you know, talking to these precinct managers and these, and these people who have a lot of influence, it's about 25 to 28 percent ride or die. We're definitely 100 percent Trump, about 48 to 50 percent. I'm on the bubble. And about 25% or so, you know, never Trump. Well, when you have a, an income, a t- basically a titular incumbent like Trump, he's a de facto incumbent here for the GOP. Uh, and he's a fully known candidate. I mean, everybody knows who Trump is. They know what he is. They got his brand. Okay, they've got all that. So if you've got somebody who's a fully known candidate and you have 50% of the people on the bubble, that means that 50% of the people voted for him in 2020 and 2016. Why are they on the bubble now? It's because they really don't want him for whatever reason, and they're looking for an off-ramp, but they want to make sure they don't get into a leaky lifeboat. You know, they want to keep Trumpism. They're not sure they want to keep Trump. They want to keep MAGA, but, you know, if, if Trump is the only guy that can deliver MAGA, they still want Trump. But if somebody else can show they can deliver MAGA as well or better than Trump, then they're not going to have the cult of personality, you know, cult-like devotion to Trump. They're going to make a switch. And I think this is DeSantis' tremendous opportunity here. And I've said this all along. DeSantis doesn't need to, you know, uh, uh, multiply the fishes and, you know, and, you know, uh, heal the sick and walk on water to win this thing. He just needs to be the reasonable MAGA alternative to Trump, where these people that are on the bubble can say, okay, you know what? Trump did a lot of good things for us. I appreciate it. But he's got a lot of drama around him. I think he's risky. We can't take a chance in this general election to lose to Biden and the Democrats because we will lose the House. We'll lose the Senate. We'll lose two Supreme Court justice seats because we got two aging uh, Republican Supreme Court justices. It's not worth the risk. I'm going to go ahead and roll the dice and go with DeSantis. He seems reasonable. Okay, I get him. He seems reasonable. And that's what DeSantis, I think, is doing. That's the meme that he's creating out there. And that's one of the reasons why DeSantis has not been going hard after Trump and attacking Trump, because that's really not the point, because these people that are on the bubble have already decided they don't really want Trump. They don't have to convince them. 
that they don't want Trump. What you have to do is convince them they do want DeSantis. And that's, I think, what he's doing. And I think DeSantis is building up this, uh, this message, <clears throat> this meme, so that he peaks at just the right time. And you, as a candidate, you want to be peaking right at the moment where people are going into the voting booth and pulling the lever. Anything before that is a waste. You know, anytime, if you peak before that, that's always, you want to peak, just going, going like a football team. You want to be playing your best football in the playoffs. And that's what DeSantis, I think, is, is structuring himself to, uh, to do. And and that's also really fascinating, Bill Mitchell, because, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, media chatter and some of the response, um, even from you know, listeners here at AFR, have been asking the question of, you know, has DeSantis kind of rolled out the campaign too slowly? And, uh, you know, now with the last week, he did the Jake Tapper interview, and, he, and it seems like he's ramping up uh, some of his media appearances, some of especially the opposition media. In your view, yeah. um, has that been too slow? Or is this something that is is more calculated and it's planned because we do still have a long way to go until the primary. And right now, you know, a ton of people are on vacation. A lot of people don't even want to pay attention to politics. They're so fatigued. They want to know what's going on in the world. But they're like, the primary is not even until next year. Like, what, what are we even doing right now trying to have all of these, you know, kind of conflicts within the GOP base? Yeah, well, you know, you know, everybody remembers the, the fable of the tortoise and the hare, right? You know, it's the, yes. the hare is a very fast, he's a fast bunny rabbit, and he could win the race easily. And the tortoise is just, you know, plodding along, plodding along. And the hare is, is running around and screwing around and taking a nap and going, you know, getting lunch and all this stuff while the tortoise just moves ahead. Well, it makes you wonder if the media was reporting on the tortoise and the hare story, they would basically said, oh, the, the tortoise is too slow. He's never going to win. The terror's got all the advantages, so on and so forth. Well, we all know at the end of the story, the, the tortoise won. And I think this is sort of a tortoise and the hare fable here. The DeSantis is just, you know, he's building a base. He's, he's building ground game. They're training these people to go out and do ground game. We don't see Trump doing any ground game anywhere. He's, he's really pulling a Hillary and trusting these polls that, that can get him over the hump. Also, I think Trump doesn't feel like he should have to do this again. He's like, wait a minute. I already did this before. I've done it twice. You know, I was president. I really, you know, shouldn't have to do this. And I should have actually won the midterm, so I could have been just coordinated here. And so he doesn't want to do the hard work, the ditch digging part of this. You know, it's almost like you're building a house and you laid the foundation. You got the house halfway built. A hurricane came along and blew it down. It's like, you know, do I have to start over again? I already did this. Right. So I think that that's his his attitude towards that. And he's not doing the hard work on the ground. And DeSantis is. And those are the things that that really pay dividends in the long range. And, you know, Trump says, oh, I did this big rally, you know, stuff like that. Uh, but like in Iowa stuff, and they say, Santa Santa's just had 50 people in the room. That's how you win in Iowa. You know, it's retail politics. It's word of mouth. It's making people feel like you're one of them, not just you're some big guy on the stage. Because Cruz won Iowa in 2016. He didn't have any big rallies. Trump had a huge rally. So, that, you know, that, that retail politics uh, really goes. And all you need is that first victory in Iowa to show a chink in Trump's armor, and the whole thing can collapse because so much of Trump's support is, well, he's inevitable. You know, he, he's, you know, he, right. he can't beat him. He's inevitable. But all of a sudden, if you beat him in Iowa, it's much different than, than in, in uh, beating him in Iowa in 2016 because Trump was kind of an unknown then. Trump is the incumbent. So if you take him down in Iowa, I mean, the whole thing can fall apart for him. 
Yeah, and, and I think that that is really a lot of the Team Trump messaging is that, well, he is inevitable. And so why doesn't everybody just drop out? We're wasting your time, you know, that kind of thing where they're trying to come from a position of strength. But at the same time, you know, we see a lot of the, um, in my opinion, you know, completely frivolous and, and also just outright false attacks um, against DeSantis that does not project to me a position of strength. Um, so in the last few minutes we have on this segment, and I'm going to hold you over to the next one so we can continue, uh, Bill Mitchell, sure. you know, w- what do you make then um, with the Vivek Ramaswamy factor? Because we're, uh, we came off of the, the turning point event where, you know, where Trump came and he spoke and Vivek did, Ron DeSantis didn't go. Uh, but then in Iowa, uh, for the, um, the sit down with Bob Vanderplatz and the, uh, the Family Leader Summit, uh, Trump chose not to come and do that one-on-one with Tucker, which I think in hindsight was a mistake. Um, and the the Trump team is interestingly trying to elevate Vivek as the number two to push down some of the DeSantis support. But this straw poll of, you know, very uh, hardy conservatives only has Vivek at, you know, less than 4%, which if that's accurate... Um, this really is a two-man race between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. And even if DeSantis doesn't come out on top um, in Iowa, if he only is second by a couple of percentage points, I mean, that still would be a win. I mean, that's similar to 2016, when Donald Trump was second to Ted Cruz by only a couple of percentage points. And that built the momentum for then the rest of his campaign to ultimately win the nomination in 2016. Yeah, um, well, here's the thing. <clears throat> With Vivek, you know, Vivek is, you know, he's a he's a good talker, but he doesn't have any real world experience in running a government. Um, it's like it's like, you know, let's I, I like the car mechanic uh, example. The Santas is like going to take your car to a guy who's been doing working on cars for 10 years. Vivek is like taking your car into a guy who read a book on how to fix cars. You know, he might be able to, you know, say all the right things and so on and so forth, but he hasn't actually done it. He hasn't done the day-to-day work of running a major government. And we saw from Trump that just having a, uh, a corporate background uh, and, and running a, a big business from a corporate standpoint is a completely different animal than running a government. Because, mm-hmm. you know, in the corporate life, if you, know, if you have a Paul Ryan who's giving you a hard time or you have a Mitch McConnell who's giving you a hard time, you fire them. Okay, in the government, you can't do that. You know, you can't fire the deep state very easily. They can appeal and appeal and appeal. They can outweigh you or out outweigh you. Uh, and you know, you can't fire elected officials. Uh, you have to uh, get along with these people if you're going to get anything done. Uh, so you can't just you know rule by uh, by fiat. And it's like, okay, well, I said it, and that's the way it is. You know, you get get agreement. So it's a whole different thing. And you and to come into the White House. Being president should not be um, an on-the-job training thing. And I think Vivek is going to have a certain amount of people that like, oh, I like his ideas. He's very, you know, his good personality and so forth. But as far as actually, you know, being the guy that people would elect to do the job, I don't think that he's uh, really that serious of a threat. Yeah, I'm speaking with Bill Mitchell, uh, my good friend who's the CEO of uh, America's Voice News. And uh, we're talking about this new straw poll. And I agree with you that, you know, government work is all about team building, coalition building. And this is where a lot of people are saying Ron DeSantis is the Trump 2.0 because he's actually done this as a governor of a state. Um, He's done this very well. A lot of people ride on his coattails. And so we'll be talking about 
all of this uh, and more on the next segment. So stick around right here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. We'll be right back. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back. And I'm talking with my good friend, Bill Mitchell, who is the CEO of Your Voice Studios. And you can go to yourvoicenews.com or you can follow him on social media, particularly on Twitter, which has become a great streaming platform for uh, podcasts, for shows. And so uh, my show streams on my Twitter feed and Bill's uh, streams on his. And uh, Bill, I want to get into kind of the, the Twitter element that we were talking about during the break. But um, but let's go back and, and kind of wrap um, this with some of these, you know, polling numbers. And I think the, um, the messaging from uh, DeSantis and what you think he has to ultimately do uh, to either be in head-to-head or to pull ahead of uh, Donald Trump. Because one of the things that you and I have talked about extensively with polling is that it doesn't measure intensity. And you talked about that a little bit in the last segment, but um, you know, but not by name, where a lot of these people kind of are default Trumpers because they voted for him at least in 2020, maybe were you know, converts from 2016 or probably voted him tw- for him twice but are now kind of saying either it's it's Trump fatigue, it's looking at all of the indictments, it's looking at the vulgarity, it's like, you know, whatever it is. Um, they're saying we want to have Trump's policies without the personality. And DeSantis truly is that alternative, which I think is why uh, the, the team Trump camp is trying to paint him very falsely as a, you know, rhino, big establishment, globalist, you know, world economic forum hack, because if they show him as pro-America first, then they are conceding the fact that he is uh, more of the America first 2.0. So what does he have to do to overcome this this really well-oiled media apparatus that is the Trump campaign? Yeah, well, here's the thing, is that one of the reasons why Trump's mockery over the other candidates uh, worked in 2016 was because it was funny, you know, <clears throat> you know, attacking Jeb, going after little Marcus. It was kind of funny, kind of amusing, because there was something about it that rang true. But one of the key aspects of comedy is it has to ring, it has to have truth in it, because if it doesn't have truth in it, then it's not funny. And uh, so the problem that Trump has when he goes after DeSantis and saying DeSantis is a globalist or DeSantis is a rhino, it's just so preposterous that, you know, there's really no evidence to show that. And they say, well, you know, Paul Ryan likes him or, you know, uh, Griffin likes him or so on and so forth. It's all guilt by association stuff. But, you know, that doesn't work with with most people. I think that, uh, you know, the real question here is, you know, I think DeSantis is doing the right thing as far as rolling out policy. Um, I think that uh, going on the um, the opposition media, clearly, he went into the lines dealing with Jake Tapper, and Tapper gave him a very fair interview. I think Tapper was impressed. I think that you heard the talking heads on Twitter, on Twitter, on CNN, saying, you know, hey, this guy seems really presidential. And it's, I mean, it's hard to listen to DeSantis speak and not be impressed with his intellect. Uh, and he just seems like a cool cat. You know, he, he's just like, yeah, you know, they said this and this about me, but here's the deal. And one thing that he's very good at is he's very good at doing political judo, where you ask him a question about one thing, and he answers that question briefly, but then he pivots to what he really wants to talk about. And he's been real good at that. So um, I think he needs to work on his, uh, 
emotional hooks. He, he needs a lot of, you know, catchphrases. Uh, um, you know, I think one of his catchphrases came out with the other day that was good was some, was something like, uh, you know, um, uh, I can't, it was, I, I'm not here to make a name for myself. I'm here to make changes or something like that. Yeah. So I need to come out with stuff like that. Emotional hooks, entertaining, uh, this sort of thing, the kind of stuff you would put on a coffee cup or a t-shirt that people would chant at a rally, you know, like lock her up, build the wall. Mm-hmm. These are very effective because, you know, it's, it's simple. It's emotional. And you got to remember that people buy emotionally and after they own it, they rationalize it logically. Right. So you can't just go with just a logical sales presentation because you're missing the fact that people do buy emotionally. So you got to make it fun. You've got to make it interesting and exciting. So I think that he should up his game <clears throat> on that. Um, and he can reach out to his social media people. You know, we, He's got people like people like me. This is what we, we do catchphrases and zingers for a living, okay? So we're very good at that. Uh, I remember back in 2016, I had some very well-known Fox News personalities that before they would do a hit on Fox News, they'd send me a text message. I'm like, okay, I'm going to Fox News in 20 minutes. This is the topic. Give me three zingers. And I give them three mm-hmm. zingers, and they go on Fox News, and they would use my zingers, and they'd all get a laugh. It's like, oh, wow, you're so brilliant, right? I'm thinking, okay, thanks. Yeah, where's my check, right? So anyway <laughs> – but that, but that, you know, that's what we can do to help with that. So, uh, but I think, I think he's building, you know, he's building the case. He's building the foundation. Uh, he's being the reasonable alternative to Trump. And of course, Trump helps us by being such a, you know, a, a train wreck all the time as far as, you know, I mean, my saying on Twitter was he, uh, Trump has never met a, a rake that he didn't want to step on. You know, the guy just is constantly stepping on the rake, constantly causing himself trouble. And, uh, you know, like going after Kim Reynolds in Iowa, what's the point? Why, why even do that? You know, and yet we believe that, see this, I think 75 to 80 percent of Iowa voters now don't like the fact that he's going after her like that. So uh, that helps as well. And um, uh, but uh, I, as far as, you know, he's never going to go sophomore. He's never going to go childish attack on Trump. He's never going to go the name calling and that sort of thing. Uh, does he need to call him out by name on specifics? Uh, you know, I mean, that's where I'm not sure about that. And I know you have an opinion about that too, so I'm not sure. Um, do we need to do better? You know, one of the things that's so annoying for us is we get attacked by his, you know, acolytes, his sycophants, his, his mouthpieces on Twitter. Some of them, you know, that are quite abusive, misogynistic, quite abusive, sexist. They say horrible things on Twitter. And, mm-hmm. you know, should we ignore them as, as, and take away their oxygen? Because, you know, if we don't engage with them, the only people that are listening to them are people that were already agreeing with them anyway. You know, but if we engage with them, they get access to our entire feed, you know, and it sort of poisons the feed. So should we just ignore them? It's hard. I tell you, I've been on the front lines. When they come after you, it's hard just to hold your tongue and, and just ignore them. But maybe, maybe we should. I'm not sure. Yeah, and and I think um, you know all of that is is uh, good analysis, and it's it's interesting to me that being post twenty sixteen politics is a double edged sword because in twenty sixteen we needed a kind of reinvention of the party or at least a recalibration, and I think that Trump uh, ended up being the perfect person to do that, and that's why I supported uh, him in twenty sixteen, and then of course worked for him um, through the reelection campaign. Um, and all of that. And he had great policies. He did have a lot of significant wins. Uh, but the the other side of that, that double-edged sword, is that now we have this kind of uh, political environment, especially with younger people who don't remember a, a Republican Party 
pre-Trump and especially because they, they either came of age during the Trump years or they remember, um, you know, Obama being in office for eight years. They didn't have, you know, kind of the Republicans in, in charge, at least in the executive. And so this has become a lot more about personality than it has about policy. And even though that's always been true in politics, that you buy into the personality and you want to be a part of a team and part of the movement and part of something, um, there was still more of a policy-driven agenda, even behind people like Reagan, I mean, you know, who was a very great order, a wonderful leader, but he had substance and he had um, you know, that type of of policy that we still look back, you know, this has now been almost 40 years ago that he was in office and say, we are the party of Reagan. Well, why? Because he had substance as well. And that's what I see right. in DeSantis is that he has that substance um, as well as the the personality, but it's really hard in a post-2016. I mean, I think if DeSantis was running in you know 2008, then we would be speaking very differently about his campaign. But he's going into an environment that has been dominated by like the number one media personality, Donald Trump, for the last eight years. So uh, so this is a really interesting uh, sort. And then speaking about particularly social media and that rise, we're seeing so much of the retail politicking driving the news headlines that originates on social media. You talk about these people uh, about vulgarity, and I don't even know if, if my AFR audience knows uh, how vulgar these people are. I mean, even in the commentary, it's really disgusting, actually. <laughs> the things they say, it, it are, is. I mean, so yeah, like there, there are things, and some of these people aren't even U.S. citizens. They're not even American voters, right? Well, and, and some of this stuff, I mean, is so vulgar. I couldn't even say it on the air. And they're they're tweeting right. about this, and they're specifically calling out, you know, you and me just for making comments on politics and for being, um, you know, DeSantis supporters. I mean, I haven't endorsed anyone, but clearly, I'm supporting DeSantis. And um, and like him as a candidate, I'm offering you know pushback against the the things about um, Team Trump. And I think that that's the value of calling out some of these things is that if we don't say the truth and go, okay, well, wait a minute, if all you're doing is pushing back, um, you know, against someone because they their view is is now contrary to yours when they were your best friend five minutes ago then that doesn't speak to the the strength of your position it only speaks to you are only my friend if you agree with me which is actually a leftist position i mean all of these people are acting like like total leftists and so speaking of the online view of twitter bill mitchell um you and i have also talked extensively over the last couple of months um, offline about online and how there is a clear suppression and shadow banning of a lot of pro DeSantis accounts, even with this um, subscription platform and monetization that Elon has built into the Twitter platform. And I think that that's a fascinating topic of conversation because um, this needs to be a platform that is truly free speech. So what are you observing right. uh, specifically and why does this matter? <clears throat> Well, what people need to understand is there's visibility and engagement, okay? <clears throat> visibility is impressions. That means how many times did your tweet appear in the, the feed of another person where they scrolled past it? But it doesn't mean they read it. doesn't mean it just means they scrolled past it. How many times is your uh, tweet being presented to other people for consideration? That visibility, those are impressions, okay? Engagement is... Did they click on it and open it? Did they watch the video? You know, did they retweet it? That's engagement. So what you're having is, and I know that Jenna has this, and I know that I have this. I think Jenna has like a million followers. I have like almost a half million. 
is that, um, you know, I'll put out a tweet with my almost half million followers. And typically uh, on a first pass, about 2,000 people are seeing my post. It's like, well, wait a minute. You've got almost a half million followers. How is that possible? Well, it's because I'm being deboosted. What's happening is that Twitter, and I constantly hear this all the time from my, some of my biggest fans. You know, I'm doing a space, and people reach out to me and say, Bill, <clears throat> I followed you for years. I love your show. I never see your posts. And I post like 30 times a day because I'm more of a stream of consciousness, you know, poster. And um, I never see your posts. I haven't seen your posts in weeks or months. <clears throat> I never see your shows or anything like that. And it's out there constantly. The only way I can see your posts is if I come to your profile. This means that you're being boosted. Whereas uh, if I go to my For Me section on Twitter, which is my my home area, and you can do for me or people. If I do for me, I mean, the whole thing is Pasobic and the whole thing is, you know, or Laura Loomer and the whole thing is this Alice guy. I don't even follow these people. And yet I'm, I'm being bombarded with their posts and this is increasing their, you know, their visibility. So why is this going on? You know, what's happening? Uh, are they, are they going after people specifically that were canceled before like I was and they came back and now I'm on some sort of probationary period. Well, I don't think so because like Laura Luma was canceled and now she's back and now she's getting, you know, uh, she has 400,000 followers and then gets 10 million impressions on a tweet. It's insane, right? So uh, it, it does seem to be there's somebody there in the Twitter organization that is intentionally uh, holding us back. And one of the things that, that Elon Musk mentioned a couple months ago is there's something in their algorithm that when people, uh, a lot of people report you, okay, <clears throat> that you get deboosted, but it's all based upon, let's say, for instance, that you have uh, 10,000 followers and 1,000 people report you. That's a big proportion of your followers, and yeah, you should be deboosted. Obviously, you're causing trouble on social media, on Twitter. But if you have 450,000 followers and 1,000 people report you, that is an insignificant you know, percentage, and it should not deboost you. And they said... Elon said the problem with Twitter is that Twitter, when it comes to deboosting uh, and these complaints uh, it, or reporting, it treats someone with a million followers the same way it treats somebody with 10,000 followers. And, and that can be so that. easily weaponized. Yeah, that can be very easily oh, yeah. weaponized, especially with all of these bot for farms and some of these other things. And, um, you know, right. and you I can think have that, bots that support it, you all day long. Yeah. Right. And I think uh, that that also one one of the things that the DeSantis campaign really needs to look at is how much social media, particularly Twitter and political Twitter, can drive media headlines and being more strategic in, in terms of going on the offensive and driving some of those headlines uh, instead of just being so reactive. A lot of what he did um, before he launched his presidential campaign, uh, was really treating the media very differently than Donald Trump. And it was quite refreshing, actually, where he didn't feel the need to comment on everything. He would just wait till a press conference and just go about his business. And I think he would treat the, the presidency the same way, where we don't need to know what he thinks about everything. We just need him to be extremely competent and do his job and do it well, which is what he's done for Florida. But running a presidential campaign, I don't think that you can treat Twitter the same way, or at least you're not using it as effectively in some of these other platforms. Because, I mean, I've had so many headlines written about me just based on things that I've tweeted. And I think the DeSantis campaign uh, could use that more effectively and more strategically. And I right. hope um, in closing, Bill Mitchell, that uh, that Elon really looks at you know some of these algorithms and things to make it 
uh, better and more equal for everyone with a political voice, whether it's Trump, DeSantis, or anyone else, um, everyone should be able to voice their political opinion without getting deboosted or lack of visibility. So uh, Bill Mitchell, we're already out of time, but always really appreciate your commentary. You can find him on Twitter, uh, Bill Mitchell, and also his uh, wonderful show. So uh, always appreciate that. We'll be back with more tomorrow here on Jenna Ellis in the morning.